Greetings from the Holly Central School District Library. This is Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. My name is Nick DeMuro, and I teach 8th grade here along with some assortment of high school electives. I'm joined by... Sheena Hammeter. I teach global here. Mike Chrisman. I teach uh, U.S. History and Government. Matt Hunter. I teach Global Studies 2. Dan Life. I'm teaching 7th grade History and Economics and Pig. All right, with this show, we hope to um, bring history to our students in district in a different way outside the classroom. We've in large part been inspired by Dan Carlin's hardcore history and wanted to model something uh, similar to that but with our own twist. Each week we'll have different members of the department sitting down and talking history. With our schedules and the way the school works, sometimes you'll, people will leave and come in and come out during the, uh, the show, so that's just the way it's going gonna, it's gonna to go. Um, we're aiming to publish one show a month, ranging from 45 minutes to a little over an hour. The goal of our show is to allow members of our district and our students a chance to ask us debate-style questions. You can submit those uh, throughout the month, whether it's in paper copy or email it to um, hollyhistory65 at gmail.com. We're actually going to be setting up a Twitter page, too, so you can actually tweet questions at us uh, if you want at some point. But uh, we're going to spend the majority of the show in that questions portion as well. Before that, we'll have the first 10 or so minutes to uh, cover what's going on in our classrooms and uh, dive into a session called Pick Your Brain. In that segment, one of our hosts will ask a debate-style question that we'll all go through. And uh, we thank you for joining us today for our first show, and now it's time for Holly History. So what's going on in the classroom? Sheena, why don't you talk about what's going on in your class uh, right now? Our class is uh, finishing up an Athens-Sparta debate where they're trying to speak about different parts of the um, Athenian government and lifestyle as opposed to the Spartan society. I think that was always my favorite project I ever did with Greek and Ad, like Sparta when I was in school. Did you guys do anything similar to that? Like, I love it. When you were in school? I don't know. I'm pretty old, so I, I can't remember that far back. You might have. Mike might have been there. Oh, no. Mike, I think I was Dan. <laughs> Mike might have been there with uh, Leonidas. Maybe you were the guy that kicked him I was part of the 300. Uh, you are rocking the goatee. Thank you. So, I mean, that, that could have been it. I'll be honest, most of that was done uh, lecture style in the old days, mm -hmm. so there wasn't a whole lot of creativity, debate or creativity in that. Anything there, anytime there's a debate, it seems like the kids get into it, and especially the whole Sparta, warlike, intimidation part, you see a lot of split there between the personalities in class. Uh, do you think the movie 300's got like an impact on kids liking that, or like, do you find a lot of kids pick the Spartans or the Athenians? Yeah, that's, that's brought up a lot. A lot of the Spartan guys like to yell, this is Sparta in the middle of the debate. Just to <laughs> answer their argument. The, li so the life of a global up. teacher. Yes. Nice. Well, and 300 also does a, a horrible job of depicting, depicting the Athenians as a bunch of wusses. I, I know. <laughs> so it's not surprising. That but they, they make up for it in that second movie, though, The, the Rise of the Empire. Mm -hmm. They actually depict the Athenians, and they... And they make a good point of, like, we, f we don't fight because we're forced to. We kind of fight because we want to for our ideals. And that, so they throw shade, like, right back at Sparta, too. I'm like, what's going on in your room right now? Uh, we're wrapping up uh, Unit 3, which is basically Washington up through the, uh, the age of reform, 1840s. Uh, mostly recently we, uh, we did some research on six of the folks from the 1840s. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Susan B. Anthony... Of course, the rest all jump out of my brain at this point. But uh, kids had to do some research. Uh, they did a, a DBQ-style quiz where they had to take a document and figure out who it most likely was authored by or about and then answer questions about the document itself. So it really kind of applied some of the new-style questions I think we're going to be looking at in the future. So There's a lot of local connections there, too. Yeah, and it was interesting watching the kids as you talk about 
uh, you know, Frederick Douglass creating the North Star newspaper, North Star Christian Academy, mm-hmm. um, you know, and... Did you do CG Finney? Uh, we didn't do CG Finney. You've done um, them in the past, though, I thought. I have in the past. We were trimming back a little bit because we spent so much time on the reformers in the past. But when I look at the test, there's not a whole lot. There's been never been anything on Finney. Mm-hmm. Never anything on the Second Great Awakening, which is a little disappointing. Yeah, that is disappointing. Um, so I'm trying to I'm trying to trim and get back to the thing that I talked about in one of my master's classes about just because you know it doesn't necessarily mean the kids need to know it. And I've been that's something I've been struggling with as a teacher. I'm I'm trying to trim back and get back to the basics a little bit. But um, but to talk about Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony and the local connections, it's really cool to watch the kids make that uh, connection and go, oh, that's and even Harriet Tubman who's buried in Auburn, which is like an hour away, you know, for the kids to go, oh yeah. Which is funny because I always have to use the outlet mall <laughs> as, a, yeah. as a reference oh, point. Yeah. It's less than 10 minutes from there. Yeah. They know. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So. so Matt, what's going on in your room? Uh, well, we actually just finished up. Um, I don't know if it's, it's probably one of my favorite events of my curriculum, but probably one of the, the kids' least favorite events initially. <laughs> but I think they, they all kind of warm up to it as we go. Uh, we just worked on uh, debates ourselves. Um, we are, we're, we're attacking the question, uh, which revolution was more impactful on human history? Uh, and they had to decide between the Industrial Revolution and the Modern Technological Revolution. Um, each student had to research both revolutions ahead of time. Um, <clears throat> some with resources provided by me, some with resources that they found on their own. And uh, they had to make the argument that uh, one was more impactful overall um, on society than the other. And uh, the big thing that gets them is they didn't get to choose which one. Um, I did drop the bombshell on them today in our follow-up discussion that uh, I feel like it would be very difficult to argue anything but the Industrial Revolution, as I would argue that the Industrial Revolution is the most impactful event in human history. That's a good so, pick of your brain yeah. question, too. Yeah, so to, back to, that. To, to argue against that would have been very difficult. It's funny because you know some of the students were accusing me of setting them up for failure, mm-hmm. but we did have some modern, modern technological revolution uh, arguments win. Which is a testament to you know those students and the effort that they put into creating the yeah. arguments themselves. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we we carried the debates out in the auditorium um, with uh, teachers and other students coming in to watch, and they were actually the evaluators of the arguments, not myself. So the winners were actually chosen by the audience, which I, I enjoy right. doing. So the students had a had a great time with it. Um, we kind of debriefed a little bit today and, and talked about uh, some stuff that came out of the Industrial Revolution, but um, they were eager and for as, as worried as they were about the public speaking factor going in, uh, I feel like a lot of them stepped up and, and really took it head on, which is good because it's a skill that uh, I keep telling them they're going to need going forward. Yep. So it's and very that, exciting. That came out of that teaching is the core grant. <clears throat> A uh, group of us attended, and that's right. We're challenged to uh, to create something authentic, authentic mm-hmm. style learning. I think what makes that interesting is the kids have to think, like think critically in a way that they yeah. they don't normally have to think in class because yeah. they have to. It's a persuasive style argument, and I know they hate tying it back to English class, but it's that whole make a thesis and and 
provide the evidence, which right. is good. Claim evidence, right? The English language, and they hate that claim. <laughs> I think they hate that claim evidence language. Yep. But it, that's I've argued all along. That's what historians do. They right. make the claim and then they back it up with the evidence, hmm. and. Yeah. Um, it, it makes them think. I think it's interesting as someone who sat in the audience and watched that develop over the last couple yeah. of years. It's really come along and well, the kids have embraced it more. All, all good history starts with a question, as one of my professors told me that in college. And, like, that's the question right there. It's like right. industrial revolution or modern technological revolution. Um, every good book you've read in history starts with a, a really compelling question, and then you want to answer that. Um, Dan, what's going on in your classroom? Well, we're doing the American Revolution right now. It's funny you guys are talking about that because we've been doing the uh, Paul Revere um, image of the Boston Massacre. And we've been Mm -hmm. trying to get the kids, Sandy Smith and I, to understand, hey, what is it that's possibly inaccurate about this image? And the kids love it, actually. They're, you know, initially they're like, oh, it's... uh, you can tell that it's the British are being ordered to fire on the colonists, you know, on that night. And uh, so it's kind of interesting. But, yeah, we've been doing taxes. We, we've really been talking, with the seventh graders at least, we've been talking a lot about boycotts and repealing a tax and that kind of thing, you know, looking at the links between England and, and the colonies. So that's kind of where we've been focused. But they really love it. They love it when, uh, you know, the the... Sons of Liberty are dumping the tea. They love it when uh, they realize that, hey, those British soldiers were actually being egged on mm-hmm. by the colonists. And mm-hmm. it certainly is not, you know, like that image that we always see with the guy giving the signal, like we're all going to fire on the colonists, these 20-some colonists here, you know. Yep. So it's really interesting how you, how you say that, how you get to get those kids to really, to, when, they, when, they're, when they realize, hey, it's not exactly the way I thought it was. It's kind of like a moment that they have. They're like, oh, jeez, it's not quite like the picture makes it look, is it? Yeah. So that's what I love about history, and that's what they like, too, I think. That's an interesting that's thing to me, too, just thinking about the idea of historiography and how the history... Yes. Yeah. You know, the kids have a hard time when I talk to them about the history of history and how history actually changes over time because as new technology And that's so out, foreign to them. Right, right. We it's discover like, new things, we learn new things, we say... You start thinking a different way, you yeah. know, right after something you have one viewpoint, but then maybe a hundred years later you can say, well, is that really how it went? Or was that how it was spun? And then you start digging deeper. And why it was spun. Too. Right, right, right. And they, they, it blows their mind to see them really experience the, the idea of, wow, maybe what I, you know, I feel like in elementary school they always take history for gospel. And one of the things that I really, really love yeah. about our department is I feel like everybody in the department challenges the kids to challenge history, right? Well, why, why might that not be true? And that, like, makes their head spin because mm-hmm. they're just like, wait a minute, what do you mean history that we know might not be true? Yeah. That well, whole, well, that whole idea of point of view yeah. is so important with the Boston Massacre. I love that. I love that exercise, and I've tried similar things when I'm teaching American history, too, because... You're right. They do want to look at a, at a textbook. Well, if it's in the textbook, that's the way it had to have happened. Yeah, right. that's yeah. and, and love being able to pick out things from past textbooks or textbooks from other countries and how they how they look at something and view something and challenge them to really rethink their what they're doing. Yeah, and we, we learned that. Uh, we went over that word spin, mm. that whole idea of spin. A lot of the seventh graders, what do you mean put a spin on something? I said, well, you know, Paul Revere really puts a spin on this. Think about it. They're all lined up. All the guns are facing. There's a guy with his hand up as if he's going to put it down. And you can tell from the story, if someone's throwing rocks and oysters 
and things that you, you know, you really are feeling panicked. You do not feel, you know, this is, they, they were kind of like, oh, that's what you mean by putting his spin on this. So all the other counties see it and right. think, hey, this is the way it must have been when, yeah. you know, they're, they, it's funny when they, the realization well, in eighth grade right now, where we uh, we're just wrapping up the immigration project, where they go through the Ellis Island databases, trying to find a family relative. Uh, the biggest challenge of this project is we have an account pre-made because not every student has an email. And if you enter the account information in wrong three consecutive times, it locks the account out. So you got kids missing like a, like <laughs> periods and then the at symbol and dot com. So you're talking like the biggest challenges right there with just that. I think we've, I got through like the first day and the first two periods didn't lock it out. It was like Christmas miracle, like never happened before. And then like they locked it like four times in one period, fifth period. So it was, it was tough, but it's a really good project because they get to go, they get in touch with the past. And I think that will segue well into our next conversation is they, you learn so much. I mean, the, those records have eye color, marks of identification, um, how much money they had on them. Did they have a ticket to the destination, where they were going, who they were going to stay with? what their profession was. And then when the kids get to the portion, they're like, what's a polygamist, Mr. D? <laughs> so we have to have to talk about what a polygamist is. And then anarchists, they ask them if they're anarchists, because the anarchist movement was huge right. in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So that's also like a super interesting part. And they have to take the information and use it to write the narrative about that immigrant and what their, their experience was like. And then today we got to labor, so we kind of segued well from immigration to the labor movement there. And then the World Wars class, I was just going to, you know, I co-teaches with Mike and Matt. I was going to kind of speak for them here just because I had it written down. Um, we're, we just did a massive project that Mike created um, on why the U.S. entered World War One, in which they had like seven or eight different points of view. They had to adopt one, kind of make their case with it, um, and they began their presentations today. So that uh, that's kind of what's going on in each of our classrooms. Our next segment now is the pick your brain segment for about you know, 12, 15 minutes. And each week one of us will bring a question to discuss, and we're going to talk about it. And the first question I want to ask is, why is social studies the most important content area? If it is, if we do think that. And I'm inclined to think everybody here does. Absolutely. Um, I want to hear from Sheena, <laughs> Sheena first, though. Sheena, why is social studies the most important content area right now? Why is it the most important? I think that social studies gets us to understand human nature. I always look at it from a psychology standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, what motivated people thousands of years ago still motivates people today. People want resources, they want power, they want to be liked, they want the same things. And if you take a look at history, a lot of the other topics kind of fall into history, like art history, there's literature in history, so you can gather not only what happened in the past, but what kind of motivated people and what inspired people. So instead of looking at a couple, you know, couple things in history, we can look at hundreds of years of people and what, what makes them tick. So that's why I think it's so important. Matt? Um, I think for me, one of, I guess, my big catchphrases um, has always been knowledge is power. And to me, social studies teaches you to not take everything at face value. We were just talking about it, right? Question everything. And and if you take everything at face value, you can be led by It would those. be a li libertarian you speaking out with it. I don't know. But I, I, I love going through stories, and even when I taught, especially when I taught Global One before, uh, seeing how some groups are controlled just through simple knowledge. 
and and watching, you know, again, going off of Sheena's point, struggling for everybody wants power, right? Well, if you can find a way to use knowledge uh, and gain control of a whole group of people. Uh, my favorite part is, what you know, with social studies, the big question is always, oh, why do we need to learn about a whole bunch of dead guys, right? Yeah. Well, the point is that you want to make sure that you see how either six people were tra- able to be successful and try to replicate that or to see why people were unsuccessful and try to avoid doing those same things. Um, and if you don't have at least an understanding, I tell them all the time, we don't need memorization anymore. Google exists for memorization, right? But what we need is we need to learn to understand cause and effect. And social studies, I think, does the best job of using the events of history to show and illustrate cause and effect. Because this happened, these other things happened. And if we want to recreate those results, we need to do things like that. If we want to avoid these results, we need to avoid things like that. And so I think the, the best part about social studies is it's, it's almost a roadmap for success and mm-hmm. failure. And if you don't know those successes and failures, you're going to continue to take those wrong turns. Mike, uh, your perspective on this? Well, it's, it's interesting because you talk to folks and they say, especially kids, you know, you talk about... Actually, Matt has to leave us right now, so thank you, Matt, for, for giving us the time. And uh, Thank you. Thanks very much. We'll see you guys next month. All right, see you, Matt. A lot of folks think social studies and think history, and what they don't realize is that social studies encompasses eight areas yes. in which we're certified to teach, which is economics, history, psychology, sociology, anthropology, archaeology, political science, and geography. Hold your breath. Whew. But a lot of folks don't realize... And, and when, you, when you stop and think about all the things that we do in our classroom, we're incorporating all those different things into it. And no offense to the, to the other uh, subjects, but I, I find it hard to find another content area where there's so much of a shotgun of different topics within a content area to cover. Mm-hmm. I, I, and, I, and I agree with Matt, that whole idea of what, what makes success and what doesn't. It, it really, you look at the successful leaders, you look at the powerful leaders, they all have certain qualities and certain innate abilities to, to be able to do things or not successful, you know, and, and things like that. Um, I always focus on the U.S. history and government end just because it's, it's who I am and what I teach. And I've been teaching U.S. history now for more than 20 years. Um, the young Almost people, as long as I've been I wasn't going to go there, but yes, that is quite correct. Um, the ability of young people to understand our government, how it has yeah. operated how it's operating now, how it should operate in the future. Um, young folks have such a, a very definite vision of what they want things to look like and how do we get there. You have to know where you to know where yeah. to go yeah. to go someplace. You gotta know where you've been and where you are now. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I think that the subject innately uh, leads to, to that to that. And hopefully it's gonna be a successful thing. Yeah. So Dan. I, it's funny, I always get a kick out of it because uh, it seems like <laughs> First of all, at open house, granted, I've got 20, 26 years in now, but I'm still laughing. That's as long as I've been alive. Exactly. I know. Is I, <laughs> it's more than me, I'd like to say. It's <laughs> like if I had a dollar for every time I saw one of our alumnus somewhere and they came up to me and they said, oh, man, you know, I didn't really appreciate history so much when yes. I was younger. Oh, my God, yes. But now I really love it. And it seems like they're always a little bit older. It's almost like history is one of those things that – 
you almost appreciate it the more you get older. Like you don't yeah. really see the wisdom yes. or the value in it so much when you're younger, but as you get older, you realize yeah. that those people that really have an understanding yeah. and a grasp of history, I mean, those are the people that have done some great things and some terribly horrific things too. Yes. And so I always, it's funny though that I say to a kid, Hey, uh, you know, don't you want to do well in here? You know, you got to get your work done. Oh, I don't really like history that much, you know? Same kid, I'll see him 20 years yes. later. Hey, how's it going? Oh, I just wanted to tell you how much I love history now. I know I didn't really like it when I was in your class, but isn't it funny it's, how history does that to people as you get older? It's that you know? coach you didn't appreciate when you were young I think and then you like later. I think some of it comes down to, too, when folks have families and yeah. you start, you yeah, have yeah. kids and you start talking about with your kids the fam, the old family stories, right? My grandfather's, my grandfather's both served in we World, World War II. A, we should spend an episode. Yeah, yeah, that would be good. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. oh my God, we could sleep because I am writing down. What makes, uh, what makes the thing like his Ellis Island project yeah. cool is because it makes a connection. For yeah. the they kids. love that. That's yeah, what it is. when you can that. make that connection, that's the thing. And, and when you're talking with your kids about, you know, my grandparents went through the Great Depression and their experiences were very different. That's a connection that's that's hard to replicate. And I, I, I agree with you, I, 100%. History is either something you love or hate in school. And I found so many times that kids come back later on. It's like, I love learning about it now. I love reading about it. I love talking to my kids about it. So, Yeah, it's just really interesting. So my view of it is the fact that um, I have two perspectives on it. And the first one was in, really enlightened to me by Dan Carlin. Dan Carlin said this in an episode of his Hardcore History podcast, wouldn't it be awesome if we got like a shout out from him or like send him an email or something? I want to do that because um, you know I look at so much of his stuff and I'm really inspired by it. He compared history to a TV series of the human experience, and we're all born into that TV series in whatever season. And if you are born to you know let's say season seven, let's say we're in season seven right now, the human experience episode fifty, I don't know, and but you never watch seasons one through six. You're going to be so confused on who is mad at who and why. And I think of like a soap opera, like The Walking Dead. Could you, I tell the kids, could you imagine being dropped into The Walking Dead and see, like right now, and you didn't watch the first well, how many ever seasons, and like you're so confused. And I think, you know, it's, it's this, like Sheen, I think you said it, it's the story of us. It's our story. And we don't, we certainly don't want to be making those mistakes again. And, you know, like Matt and I like everybody kind of touched on it. But it, to me, that's what I look at. And the other thing, too, is there's been a lot of work done recently that social studies is the best tool to teach students empathy at a younger age. Hmm. You know, that ability of, you know, to, to walk another, you know, to, pardon the phrase, I know it's a really common one, but uh, to walk another, a mile in somebody else's moccasins. Mm-hmm. Um, that idea of putting yourself, the perspectives, the perspective piece of history and how important that really can be. And I, I think English, you can get it from English a little bit, but I think the ability of you know, students at that young age when they're so easily, you know, you can mold them, you can, excuse me, work with them, and they get, they're really impressionable at that age. You know, if they're not learning that kind of stuff until eighth grade, it's just too late, you know, or seventh grade, it's just, it's just too late for them to, to be as impressionable. When they're young, that's the time to really, I think, give them the perspective history. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's lacking. I talked about that in the TED Talk I did, you know, last year. And it, I think it's lacking in a lot of the younger grade levels that that perspective of history that to really grab onto that. So I think that's uh, one of the bigger pieces that we're definitely missing. So that'll do it for our pick your brain session. Now we're going to get on to our questions. And I think since we opened the questions, we got a ton of questions by the way, some really good ones. Let's do it. And I think I think is 
we've really been waiting for this this segment in the show. Um, so we had a lot emailed in. We had, uh, I think, a total of one, two, three, five questions emailed in. And mind you, we only announced this podcast last week. So, you know, and I can't wait to get our Twitter feed um, and see what that's going to be like once yeah, people can tweet tweet questions at us. Mm. Um, awesome. She looks excited. <laughs> but we got to get the we gotta get the Twitter. I'm going to say it like, right now. I don't care if it gets put on mm-hmm. YouTube in, in the final show. We got to get unblocked at our school. For mm. us to do that, but not for the kids, just for the teachers, because we want to have live questions come in. You know, right. I mean, like they're not listening to the show live, but we could stream live mm-hmm. to YouTube if we, we wanted. Could. You know, it's just like an extra process. But uh, let's get to our questions here. So this comes from John Heiss, a member of our our school board. Actually, um, he emailed pretty quickly. Which president had the strongest leadership style? Now I want to point this out. Some of these questions they're more um, structured to global for some people. Some are structured more to U.S. So you'll hear, you know, like like Sheena might not jump in on this. She's a global person, right? There's nothing wrong with that. She was a little nervous at first about doing that. But, um, you know, there, there's questions that, that lend themselves to certain people. Um, there's one coming up about Gandhi that I'm not going to be very well versed to answer that I'm going to need Sheena's help on big time. Um, so which president the strongest leadership style? So let's, uh, who wants, anyone want to take a venture first? Yeah, I'm going to go with Andrew Jackson. Oh, man. Certainly oh, my gosh. Not I'm, I'm not the most, even, I'm oh. completely. Certainly oh not the most popular president and certainly committed atrocities against Native sure, Americans. Sure, sure. Yeah, but, you know, certainly, it's leadership Certainly uh, held kangaroo court against British soldiers at the end of the war of 1812. He did. Yes. But when it comes to being a take charge kind of person. Okay. He was a take charge kind of person. All right. He was willing to clear the cabinet. He was willing to bring in his own friends. He was a true, you know, um, you know <laughs> one of those guys that is going to do it his way, right or wrong. Okay. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me they're going to take him off the bill at some point. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that because I've, I've likened Trump to Jackson. Oh. Because whether you love him or hate him, he he's convinced he's right. Um, I guess yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to go the way of Jack. I'm probably going to take the easy way out, but that's okay. Um, <clears throat> and I think Washington, hands yeah. down, probably the most, has the most, the biggest challenges. And I, I think it kind of gets over, um, kind of gets glossed over. Being the first yeah. president in a republic in which they're I mean, you making mind. things up. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they're making no, things up as they go along. He's drawing the map. He's drawing the map. He's dealing with a cabinet that is... Well, it's like just, first for a group presentation. Right. You know, it's, okay. to, to say it's a fractured group is, is doing, putting it mildly. I mean, yeah. Hamilton and Jefferson alone are a handful. <laughs> I can't even imagine That's having them like, in a classroom. That's right? I mean, seriously, you have two guys who can't even agree upon the time of day, <laughs> and you're trying to mold a new country using these great minds, and I do think they're great minds in different ways, but how do you do that in a way that is... Um, that's going to save the country and be effective. So even though Mike took mine, um, I, I, I definitely say Washington because, like, you know, he's the first and and all that. But also, he puts people around him purposefully. You can see this in his military career. He surrounds himself with who he thinks are the best people. He takes their ideas. But at the end of the day, he's still the one to make the call. I think it's a great thing, and that's where I would criticize Jackson a little bit. He He's going to go with his thing no matter what. Washington's willing to listen to everybody, kind of be the last to speak, but he's always going to have the final say no matter what. He'll, he's willing to hear the criticism almost, and, and I was going to bridge this to Lincoln, you know, the team of rivals thing, and he's going to put people in the cabinet that disagree with him. 
Um, some of those were, were for political reason, Andrew Johnson. But he's to, the ability to surround yourself with people who disagree with you, who know more than you, you're okay with them knowing more than you, and that's why they're there. And you rec- the ability to recognize brilliance in other people besides yourself and use them to make things better is a wonderful leadership quality because there's some humility in it to know that you don't know everything. That's a rare leadership quality too. I, I would say that I, I think you can count on one hand the number of, I don't, you know, I think that's something we all strive to do, but at the end of the day, when we get criticized or when somebody criticizes us, it's really tough to to still act as a positive leader. So Dan had to step out. Um, we're now welcoming Mike Votri to uh, to the show. Mike, uh, you teach at Alternative High School? Yes. And Mike is probably the guy that teaches the most variety of things. <laughs> so, you know, that that's going to be a really interesting perspective we can always bring in. So, Mike, uh, which president had the strongest leadership style? See, I, I don't look at it historically. I look at it from what I know, like nothing that I've read in a book or things like that. I look at first person, the very first president I can remember like wanting to watch would be somebody like Bill Clinton, who had to go through so many things, scandals, a war, different things going on in the country, and he had to lead with things in the press and other things going on without... You know, just somebody writing it down and then you read about it. You actually get to see it firsthand. Mm -hmm. So for me, leadership style, I always wanted to vote for him and believed everything that he said. And I think as a president, that's what that's how you lead the country, Mm -hmm. especially in the modern sense, too. Uh, Mike, you're smiling from ear to ear right now. <laughs> you got to add something. Come on, to go, to go by. I, I wouldn't necessarily believe everything Clinton said, but uh, but you're also a different age than him. Yeah, yes. that's no, why absolutely. I think it's so important. When he said something, right? Even you know whatever. Even happened, when he pointed at the camera and said, <laughs> "I did <laughs> not have." Oh, you knew saying. he might have done something with that girl, but guess what? You still believed he didn't do anything. Sure. No, or, I mean his so, leadership style like I was still gonna lead people and people are still gonna believability yes yeah and you know buy what you're selling even if you take sports like a coach might not say yeah. like you are the best player and tell a player he's the best player and that player is willing to follow them yep. that's Buy-in. leadership I will and I will begrudgingly give Clinton credit I mean he's he uh, he dealt with a Republican Congress that was not Very exactly well too. and, and not, a, not a Republican Congress that was easy to no. deal with um, but it, it's interesting because he's more of a centrist mm-hmm. you know and yeah. I, I think that's interesting because Something we're lacking it, now it, it's interesting because now we're, we have people on the right or the left and yeah. and to me that you bring it more center that's when you're gonna get a whole lot more value. oh yeah people might have disagreed with him. But they disagreed on, like, issues, not the whole person. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. He kind of, yep. everybody was willing to get behind him and follow him. Yep. Yep. Sheena, you, you, you want to get involved in this one? Well, um, American history isn't my area of expertise, and I, I didn't really study a lot of the, you know, the details about the presidents. I almost want to say FDR just to stir things up with. Yeah, you know that's going to go. Because <laughs> <laughs> he had fireside um, chats. But no, no, you, you can't <laughs> deny those things. You can't deny his leadership on that. <laughs> Expanded the government to help the people, which I know we oh, are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, I mean, she's saying that because, you know, well, Matt's not here either. So that's she's poking, <laughs> she's poking the libertarians that. in the room. Go ahead, what are you saying? Sorry. Oh, no, that I'm pretty much it. Okay. Well, according uh, to my grandmother, FDR walked on wall. There's a lot of yeah. people that... I mean, yeah, but she, but she yeah. listened to Fireside Chat. Yeah. She was yeah. inspired by that. Is I think there's parallels to Clinton on that. Yeah. 
a little bit. It's fun. I just did the history and film. And yeah. One of the films that we watched was uh, Cinderella. Oh, Man. great choice. Yep. And and his friend there, Mike. You got that scene, yeah. Yeah, where there there's that contingent of people that don't want to follow mm-hmm. him, and they believe in organizing and unionizing and almost that communist view where like. You know, the rich, the rich still have everything, and there was a fraction of people that were against Roosevelt. Yep. If you watch that, you know that scene, and go back a yeah. little bit. There's a great scene in there where where he's walking down the street, and there's a, a beautiful, a luxurious car yeah, that pulls yeah. up. Family gets out, walks out with presents, and the kids got a big old round lollipop yep. like they used to have. Yeah. But it, I love that the fact that they're they're demonstrating that things are not good for everybody. But there are some who are yes. doing okay. Yes, in that the opposition to the depression wasn't. Ju- Mike, you brought that up. The opposition to FDR during the depression is, you know, there's there's the the Republican opposition who is this is you know what you're doing is socialism, that you expect to be there. The opposition you yeah. expect to be there, but the opposition does not get talked about enough. It's Huey Long. Right, the human wealth. Share the wealth. You're, that doesn't get discussed. It didn't go far enough. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, the New Deal you know? isn't isn't going far, far enough. enough. Um, Townsend, Francis Townsend, yes. wanting to give uh, the folks who are retired two hundred dollars a week. Yes, which is like four times what the average person yep. was getting in, in yep. a pension at that point. Yeah, um, that yeah, doesn't, so get, doesn't get discussed. No, not enough. at all. Not at all. And, and I think when you know, I'm when you're critical of FDR, my political background makes me critical of FDR, of course. But as I studied the guy longer and I looked at him, like he was super uh, concerned with deficit spending, and which is why he rolls the New Deal back in 1936 and seven, and the economy slumps again because you know it was almost like holding the chin out of somebody drowning in the water, and you let go of that before there's any real economic stimulus, it slumps back into depression. Right. So you know it's interesting to think that there's more opposition than you think in different ways to yeah. that. And the other point that he tries to do an end round. Around the Constitution, oh, back in the court. Yeah, here we go. Yeah. You know, it, if you I, keep I'm bringing saying, that up, I'm going to be here all day. I'm just <laughs> saying, you just can't completely eliminate it from the history. No, and and he got Congress to unite on something, right? Even the Democrats. Even the, yeah. the Democrats, like, bro, that's yeah. too much. That's too much, man. That's too much. Way to go, Easter. Yeah. So, so <laughs> Kelly Frost, one of our colleagues here, um, submitted two questions, and um, Kelly, we're going to skip over your FDR one because we just had the discussion, but uh, this one is interesting. And she asked, is it true Gandhi was a bad guy? First of all, there's some, she get ready. There's some limitations to the question. Obviously, like saying in history, as historians, we're like really, we're careful when we say bad and good. Right. Because of how we judge the times and do we want to judge through modern eyes. Mike is already, his gears, gears are turning, there's smoke coming out of his ears. <laughs> careful, you're at the age now where that might have permanent damage. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Sheena, go ahead. Um, you take the Gandhi question away. I think that Gandhi kind of teaches an important lesson in history. We kind of teach things. We, you know, we talk about the big, big parts of a of a person's history uh, historically, and sometimes we we see people as heroes because we talk about all the good that they did and the policies. And of course, he was fighting for independence in India and the Salt March and all those things where he used civil disobedience. We talk about those a lot in class. But I have students sometimes ask me, like, isn't it true that he was mean? Um, didn't he beat his wife? And things like that pop up, and then we have to look at people as human beings. Yep. Um, in Gandhi's yeah. autobiography, he admitted to some of those things. He said that he dragged his wife out um, of the house one time, and he admitted to hitting her. Um, there's also criticism of him um, as far as being 
being almost a racist by some because when he was in South Africa working, yeah. he would not want to be classified as the natives. He would want to make sure that the Indian people were seen as above that. But he's you have to kind of separate, and I think in history we always have to teach kids to say, okay, this is what they did publicly, but we can't say they're perfect or they're right. heroes. They're people. Right. Which is interesting. And they're that whole racism time. thing because yeah. we don't think of racism as being, it's always white right. or yeah. Western Europe or America oh, yeah. against... And, and that's such an interesting idea of, of Indians being racist with South Africans. Right. You know, yes. Racism is an issue on every continent. Well, it's like judging somebody in the context of their times. Right. Yeah. You know, because right now we're going yeah. through this with the Confederate mm-hmm. monuments, and a lot of people mm-hmm. are saying is, yeah. is if we rip those down, where does it stop? You know, type of thing. And a lot of people have retorted, because you know, some, some people have asked, and I think it's a good question to ask, you know, if we rip these down, does it mean George Washington's next or Thomas Jefferson? Does owning slaves alone mean that you're going to get your monument ripped down? And, you know, similar to Gandhi, if you judge him in the context of times, people have responded with, no, they betrayed their country and fought for a nation that, to preserve the ownership of people. You know, so I think that they've said, well, that's what the line is right there. But, I mean, Mike, do you want to discuss that point? Well, I, I, don't want to bring, I do want to bring it back to Gandhi, though, at some point here. I've been... Uh in my global 10 class we've been doing we just started doing imperialism and things like that and a lot of the religious aspects are kind of overlooked too like what was going on with the Hindus and the Muslims and nowadays you look at like Pakistan and India Mm -hmm. like he kind of there was there wasn't a lot of tolerance for the Muslims like he worked with the Muslims but so to that they were working together but but it was a means to an end I always think in the back of his mind he thought that all right, we'll figure out a solution. We'll give them their land. We'll take ours. And it almost seems like he kind of thought the Hindus were above the Muslims, mm-hmm. even when studying it or even you watch the movie, like the interaction between the Muslims and the Hindus, you know. Let me throw out some food for thought that just to get people to think, as I usually do. Um, oh you know, is, does Gandhi use the people as pawns? To, to achieve oh, what man. he wants. Because um, it's easy to talk about civil disobedience, but you're convincing people to go out there and literally put themselves physically on the line. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, but there's a there's a cost to that. Same, um, same criticisms were made of, of Martin Luther King mm-hmm. when they brought the kids in. Yeah. And they involved the kids in the right. movement. And saying that, you know, you are, you're using the youth as a pawn. Isn't sure. Gandhi using... The lower class yeah. as pawns, so yeah. I could I could make the argument if I had to that he's not necessarily a great guy. In the bigger context, though, I do think that his the good outweighs the bad. Right, exactly. But again, human human beings, flawed character. Right. Yeah. Um, and and sometimes you have to use people as pawns. Yes. To get what you want, and I mean, that yeah. same thing can be said about any historical well, movement, whether it's the labor movement or or anything else. I was going to say with, with Washington, Jefferson, you know, these are people, and, and any of the founding fathers, a lot of them, these are people who we revere, did great things. We look at them in a very respectful light. But at the end of the day, they took part in slavery. You know, in our modern context, that is a major. I keep bringing it back to the U.S. This is because what I know. Um, it's so it's hard to classify them as good or bad. You know, they're people and they're merely a reflection of their time. They're normal humans while they've done great things. And that's so hard for kids to understand, too. You know, Sheena, do you want any final thoughts kind of on the Gandhi, the bad guy thing? Um, I mean, I think there's like there's that component, too, 
of a lot of the um, oh gosh, what was the one point that she discussed with me one time, Kelly? Oh, like the sexual components mm-hmm. of, of Gandhi too. Like that's also some of the touchy stuff. I think people talk about. I think people get into it because that's like the hidden secrets. Like oh, I yes. didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, it's a conspiracy almost. Or him yeah, being a hypocrite and um, yeah, things like that. So yeah, I think that. That he re- he was extremely sexually repressed, and he yes. had some odd personal characteristics. And obviously, as a female, I don't agree with the, his view on women during that time at all. Exactly. So I would definitely, yeah, I might bring that up because part of what I try to do is focus on humans yep. in history and how you know their their personalities a played a role in what they did. Mm-hmm. So I'll bring it up. But yeah, we have to talk about like Mike said, we can't. It doesn't negate it, and it's like it doesn't negate do it, what they did the exactly. Yes. Everybody's kind of on a scale. Yeah. I guess you could I'm say. Um, are we good with Gandhi? Do we want to move on to our next one? Any other AFM thoughts? Okay. Um, this one's from Connor Kaminsky from our World Wars class. I was super excited to answer this question. But actually, there's one that I was under the pile that I missed. Um, came from a student. Who's older, Mrs. Monks or Mr. Christman? Oh. Somebody actually <laughs> wrote that yeah, question in there. That is awesome. We're not going to debate this, but it's just that good is to a question see. for the ages. The that feud is, is alive and well at high. Mrs. Monks, somebody <laughs> teaches Spanish here, and um, they've always argued back and forth with uh, quotes. And it, it, it's if you are in the Holly Building, you know of this feud, and people do do take part I think in it. Made the yearbook. Or it something. did. They, they were best did. best yeah. feud, right? Yes, yes. best yeah. feud. Yeah. Um, the Connor Kaminsky question, though, and I and I can't wait. I didn't tell you about that question, Mike, on purpose. That's the a, show. I, I'm I not going to respond to it because I was taught to res- have respect for my elders. Yes, so. yes. <laughs> if um, Connor Kaminsky question, if this is totally motivated by our World Wars class because Connor's in it, if Germany fell to communism after World War One, how would it have been different than fascism or what actually happened? Would Hitler be part of a communist Germany? Because, you know, Germany has a large populace of socialists and communists in, in Europe at the time. It's a major concern. And not just Germany. Britain has these concerns. The United States has these concerns. There's the revolution in Russia. This is an alive and well question. And I don't think it's a what-if one, which we caution students away. But I don't think it's a far-fetched what-if question at all. I think it's a very valid one. Karl Marx was German. I mean, he thought that if it was going to happen, it would happen in a country like Germany. We talked about in our section of World Wars where there's actually a higher percentage of communists in Germany than, yeah. than there is in Russia. So I, it's not a far-fetched mm-hmm. um, stretch to imagine Germany becoming a communist country. I don't know if Hitler would have gone for that. although Because yep. he ties communism to Bolshevism. Yeah. And I'm sorry, not communism to Bolshevism. Judaism right. to Bolshevism and communism. I totally right. messed that up. No, that's all right. Um, I, I don't know if Hitler would have would have fallen in with that. I do think. I mean, you look at the history of any communist country where communism really takes hold. There are purges. <laughs> you know, I mean, just um, so in in the end, it's not going to be good for that country. Um, but I don't think Hitler would get involved with that. And it would be interesting to know would he leave Austria then and come to Germany. And and become an influential member. I yeah. I don't know. Would would they have? Would the communists have crushed him along with any other resistance? Mm. So yeah. I that I don't know. It's a good Mike's question. been like yeah. yeah he's like, see, I, I was always taught when I was in college like there's a separation between you know communism is a economic system. Yes. And you're talking about a political system yep. more in fascism things like that yep so the combination of both of them yep to me like the I dictatorship and communism you mean like you can have a dictatorship and a communist yes. economic right. system absolutely so it just so happens and, that communism typically is delivered through and a, i think it could work if he was the dictator and could run everything almost like a stalin 
Sure. I think he would like communism. Yeah. And be like, all right, have your purges. Let's get rid of the people. I think Hitler was all about ego. And if he could yeah. keep his power through having communism, I think he would have been fine with that. Mm-hmm. Without a problem. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in, in what a... I, I don't myself, I, I'm inclined to agree with Mike, I don't know if Hitler would have been part of it. Um, Christmas, that is. That's going to get confusing. <laughs> oh, confusing. Yeah. I don't know if Hitler would have been part of it because, you know, he talks about Mein Kampf with, like, he's, he's tying communism to Judaism right away. And I, and I don't know, but you're right. Maybe his ideology evolves. Maybe Mein Kampf is just but, he throws it out. But you're, you're right. Things you write in your 20s while you're in jail. That's what I'm saying, yes. You know, right. He doesn't yeah. know anything about that. No, yeah. I'm in my 20s now. I've never been to jail, but I am in my you 20s. Know, in your 20s while you're in jail, you're going to write down a lot of things. Sure. And when you're 50 years old, let's say, and you're trying to maintain yeah. power and your ego, and you've you know yeah. controlled this for so long. Yeah. Your thoughts he, might change. He gravitated towards that Ludendorff camp after the war. Mm-hmm. The, the German army could have won. We were stabbed in the back right. by those socialist communists. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was the way he went. But I, I'm more interested in what a German, a communist Germany looks like. You know, could you could you imagine the setup we have in the world if, if Germany goes to communism in the 20s and then you have Russia who was already on their way there? Boy, if you thought the Red Scare was big in the right? United States to begin with, well, because that Germany's, would push this over the At the time, Germany's got the industrial power yeah, to really throw their weight around Europe. More so, the, the Russia needed that time in the 20s, early 30s to sort of get their way there, I guess you could say. So then does Britain fall to communism as well? Because there's a huge... Oh, yeah, and they have problems in the 20s. Communist socialist movement. In, Peaky in Blinders fans out there, which is a show I watch. Yeah. They're always coming up, the socialists and the communists. Um, I'm, I would be... I don't know what a... a a, Germ- uh, a communist Germany in Europe would have looked like after World War One, but it's the world would be very different. Yeah, I don't think we can say what it would look like, but it'd be different. Sheena, do you want to get in this one at all? Well, I think there's going to be a trend with these uh, podcasts that I, I'm a slow processor, and I'm like the student that likes wait time, so I really have to think about that a little bit more before I. Well, I inferred what would happen. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> well, I, I, I think saying it, I don't know, is like totally <laughs> yeah. fine because yeah, I, I don't. Yeah. I have no idea what this is going to look like. Well, let me put in a shameless plug for um, alternate history because oh, yeah. this is something I've I've been uh, checking out. There's a author by the name of Harry Turtledove who, oh, yeah. who's written a couple of series of books and they're awesome. Um, and the first series started off with a book called How Few Remain. And it basically takes the idea of what happened to the Confederacy actually won the, the Civil War. Oh my Confederacy gosh. becomes yeah, a real yeah. country. And they, he takes it in, in a series of books through World War One and then in World War Two, where the United States is actually allied with uh, Germany, mm-hmm. and in industrial Germany, industrial United States, and the Confederacy is allied with France and, Ger- and France and Britain. Mm-hmm. And then even in World War Two, that alliance still stays the I same. I could even see that ethnic makeup of how the country oh, split yeah. up, the Germany being part of the Midwest. And, and he does a fantastic job yeah. of being able to tie that all together. Um, and then he has another series that's really kind of out there because he's also a science fiction writer. We're in the middle of World War II. Uh, the United States is attacked by aliens. Oh my and gosh. so, so all the all these all these factions have been fighting each other. So Stalin and FDR yeah. and Tojo, they all have to work together. Oh my gosh! It, it, it again, it totally you know shameless plug for our <laughs> no, Harry Tojo, yeah. but uh, just kind of an interesting idea. And there's been some there's been some uh, historical works. Uh, Ambrose wrote a book. Yep. Stephen Ambrose, one of my favorite authors, uh, got involved with a book about historical fiction. You know, yep. what, what if D Day failed? Um, yeah. You know, so there's some there's some great questions out there. Real tipping points is what what could. Well, happen. I think I think that's a a good segue kind of because you know we got a lot of questions here and and some of these are really deep questions we have from students. 
but some of them are geeky questions that we asked when we were 12, 13 years old, and we don't want to shy away from those. You know, we, we told the kids, hey, give us what you really want to know, and we'll try to best to discuss and answer it. And, uh, you know, we might think that they're like kind of like, you know, low ball questions, like, you know, his professional historians might look at them as like, oh, come on, like, really, we're going to talk about this, it's not real history. We're not going to shy away from that. We're going to discuss it. So this one, um, this one is is on its way to that. But I think our next one is definitely um, going to get towards it. But this question is: What job was more dangerous during World War One? Working on a U-boat or digging tunnels? Um, I would have to say that I think oh, that's tough. U-boat casualty rates are crazy. They're in the thirties. You know, yeah. 30%. I wonder what the tunnel. We haven't looked at tunnel digging. No. Though. I would have to. I'm, I'm going to go with the U-boat because digging the tunnels if you don't run into the other opposing side or the artillery shells doesn't force a cave-in um, yeah I, I would have to go with U-boat because if they don't hit your tunnel if they don't have that troglodyte fight there underground if they don't the cave-in doesn't happen you're relatively safe uh, compared to the rest of your guys U-boats I mean you're in trouble if you're in one of those U-boats has to surface and the merchant gun has a the merchant ship has a gun on it you are toast or something happens and something fails and you yeah, run, you run too deep exactly. and you get crushed. There's a way. There's a way out of the tunnel. There's no way out of the right, yeah. I've just been watching the news about the Argentinian. So yeah, that's, that's been, been interesting. Yeah. And I, I just keep on thinking to myself. I'm like, okay, you got. They say that you got two weeks of food and water, and they've been missing for seven days, mm-hmm. and they're still trying to find them, and you're underwater, and yeah. And you would think in 2017, yeah. a submarine wouldn't lose contact. So I can't even think and fathom back well, then. Like, those submarines are just yeah. it's a tin can. Yep. <laughs> Mike, what would you say? U boat. In, U-boat, my, in U-boat. my mind, no, no doubt. Just the the size, um, the problems of. I mean, there's there's gasoline and oil everywhere in one of those U boat U boats. If you're <laughs> if you're um, if you're semi claustrophobic, good luck. Yeah, I couldn't do it. Um, couldn't do it. And there's just there's so much working against you. And and you think too. I mean, the World War One U boats don't have heaters in them at all. Mm-hmm. No. So you're here. You are in the North Atlantic, where it's yeah. freaking cold to begin with, yeah. and you have nothing but water around you, just chilling that good thing luck. down. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck surviving. Um, our next question comes from Liam Anderson. He's now he's a huge Dan Carlin fan. Shout out to Liam. He, yeah, huge huge Dan Carlin fan. Um, and this question is something that Dan Carlin talked about on his podcast, Romancing the Tribes, how humans have a natural attachment to the romanticism of like the noble savage and and uh, and tribal life. And and Liam, you got six questions here, man. Um, we're picking one today. I want some of these are going to be whole shows, bud. They're great questions. Um, which tribal group, Native Americans, Germanics, Celts, was the most historically intimidating? This is one of those our geek questions. And which one of these groups would you say was the most successful? Um, man, I. I like this question a lot. Dividing the Germanics and Celts are tough. Is there somebody he left off of this? So it can't be anybody? Mm. It, uh, no, I, no, you could. No, it says et cetera. So you can be anybody. So. Um, I'm inclined to stick to one of these. Well, for me, if it's the tribal group, there's got they got to be at a disadvantage. Do you understand what I'm saying? they got to be at the disadvantage. There's got to be somebody more developed than them. It, that's kind of what I think the question implies. Can they start and then... Yeah, no, I, I, I think the whole... Yeah, or does it have to be in the time? Oh, this is tough. 
Because um, I always go with the Mongols. See, I don't think I was thinking that. I don't think you can go with the Mongols because they literally have technology that's better than the people around them. But they didn't start. But with they didn't that. start that way. They started as a steppe people. They they started as if nomadic you wanted, people. If you wanted to say the steppe people, I think it's a justified. But if answer. you want to start with but the I Mongols, you can say the Mongols. just nomadic, and then we're just going to go over and roll in and take over people, and yeah. then steal the technology and enslave them, so we can just keep going up. I don't like. I said I think if you said the steppe people, like if you go all the way back to the Scythians and. Those people, you know, drinking drinking your enemy, you know, using their skull as a mug, as <laughs> the Scythians like to do. Um, I, I think you'd have to go. I think you do. I think you have to, I think you have to. I don't think you say the Mongols themselves. I think you say the Steppe people if you're going to go that route. Intimidating wise, I'd say the Aztecs. Yeah, that's sure. what I was going to mention. Yeah, no, that's a good. Sheena, go ahead. No, I just I just think that the some of the stuff that you hear about the Aztecs with like human sacrifice and how they. You know, prisoners of war they used for human sacrifice. Just that imagery and and the power that they had with building um, allies with those around them. Mm-hmm. As far as the successful piece of that, yeah, I mean, yeah. sacrificing people to the sun's <laughs> not—it's just yeah. you know—it's it's an absolutely terrifying idea. It, it's interesting, and and the the question is is a, is a tricky one because the Aztecs at their height are not um, a small power. They are mm-hmm. the power right. in. Uh, Central America, but as they as they develop that, I think that's Mike Botry. I think that's where you were going with the Mongols because they they start off as yeah. this this smaller nomadic, you know, going from town to town, and right? Then and then on. it builds into something. Yeah. yeah. Um, although I mean, the, I mean, and I wonder too how much like the Germanic and Celts are. Are romanticized in well, movies. I mean, I'm, you look at things like Gladiator yeah, or Braveheart. That's, I mean, and our, our Western view colors that. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about that. Absolutely. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna be the Western guy here. I'm gonna say it's the Germanic peoples. Um, you know, Native American history has always been a fascination of mine, but uh, I gotta go with the Germanic peoples because if you look at what they brought down, they brought down the Roman Empire at the end of the day, and you can argue as to what 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 the Roman Empire was at that time. Um, the, the first experience, obviously, again, Dan Carlin harken back to him, the Teutons and the Kimbri, when they roll in just before the uh, uh, it just before the turn of from A.D. to B.C., there, or B.C. to A.D., excuse me, um, you know, just before the times of Caesar and everything, the Teutons and the Kimbris roll in, and they scare the bejesus out of the Romans, and they do quite a bit of damage. Um, but at the end of the day, at the end of the Roman Empire, the Germans bring it down. The Germanic tribes bring it down, but then but you they bring the division of, but they bring down a week in there. But they still did it. But they still did it. To regroup and go to the Byzantine, you kind of just moved down a little yeah, bit. Sure, is that really bringing down an empire if they just kind of move down the coast and say, "Take that"? And I, we're I, gonna, still, I still need to bring down the empire. Yeah, and we're going to the good part of the Mediterranean, and we still have control of I mean, trade. Should, yeah, I, and, and the way the way they brought it down was they essentially became Roman, uh, like like were the Romans. Um, but yeah, the step people are up there for me. They got to be up there, and then I would probably put the Germanic people. Even the difference between Germanic and Celt. How's that? Like, come on. Like, there's a historian that wrote like, "You're Celtic if you think you're Celtic," because it's so broad. And and what's the difference between a Germanic per- person and a Celt? Like, you know, and, and that whole that whole argument. But I think that's a a good a good spot to sort of transition to our next question there, because we got to get to one like this. Like, this is a this is a typical question we expect for the show. And they, our kids are so fascinated by it. And I think it. I don't, I don't think it's a bad question. Um, you know, who is who's a worse dictator, Hitler or Joseph Stalin? Um, it's a fun question. It's and it's some you know professional stars might roll their eyes at it. So do we a little bit, but it's still fun. Um, Sheena, you want to start this one off? 
Or do you, no, wait, do you want that processing time? Or? <laughs> yeah, I'll come okay. back to me. Mike, yeah. go ahead. Wow. Um, <laughs> again, how do we define worse? It's like good or bad? Is well, that yes? Yeah. Yes um, <laughs> to both. I, all right. So I'll I'll say Hitler, with the only caveat that Stalin's actually working with the Allies during mm. World War Two. Yeah. But, I mean, in evil the end, empire versus evil empire. Well, it's it's the enemy. My enemy is my friend. Yes. And they were working together, and, until you know, until uh, you know Hitler invades. Um, so <laughs> I mean, I guess I'll. I, Neither one is is good. Uh, well, on the invading point, how about like Stalin trusting Hitler and like not believing the reports are true? Well, I was gonna say, and the there most, were reports all over the, the border. The most paranoid of, guy, yeah, trusting the one guy you can't trust, and then goes and purges his generals because you didn't give me enough information, and then that really leads. Well, he even to, purged before that on right, top yeah, of it too. Yeah, exactly. Like, so I mean, I guess Hitler um, is the worst simply because Stalin's it? actually working. With the Allies for a yeah. while, but in the end, he's he's not any better. But Mike, poetry. I have a difficult time. <laughs> I do too. I I agree with Mister Chrisman about you know yeah Stalin at least worked with the Allies. However, I look at I'm not saying either one was good. They were both bad. But where they got their countries and what was their goal through doing this? Like if mm-hmm. you look at the Soviet Union prior to communism and what he was trying to do and then he had to do these things and then Hitler during World War One, and then has to do these things yeah. it's almost like you can't like good and Hitler. bad is like a, like a judgment like yeah. in that time period Hitler like, gets him out of the depression yes <laughs> he gets him out <laughs> of the throwing it out there I'm going to have to defend it but on, <laughs> the ju- on the justice scale that's like a pebble yeah, exactly and then like right. the holocaust the other end is like yeah. a massive rock <laughs> Yeah. That breaks everything, right? I would have to say Hitler because of the Holocaust. Yeah. If we were just saying, it's the, it's the systematic nature of the whole yes. thing, and that the Ukrainians might have a, something to say about. And that. I yes. was just going to come back with that. Well, like, there's some countries in Africa, but exactly. well, but also with 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 that whole thing is with the Ukrainian piece. There are historians that will argue you to the teeth that the Ukrainian incident was not a genocide. You know, just like Armenians. I, I, I know, just like Armenians. Yeah, I know historians who will argue that the Ukrainian thing and the, the, they go the same way with Mao. You know that it was always just a, it was a consequence of his flawed policies and it was not intentional. I don't agree with that. I had a politics of genocide professor in college who called that for what it was, um, and and totally disagreed. My perspective on this, God, this is like a this is a tough decision for me. This is like rooting for. Ohio it's State or point. like the Dolphin. I don't know. This is so hard for me. Maybe you could root for a winner. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. No, insert college football joke here. All right, Ms. Uh, Ms. Hammer, what do you got to say about this? Come on. I think that if you broke it into for the worse for the world or worse for their, their country, I don't know. Ooh. Hitler, if you put it in terms of like what he did yeah. with World War II, and obviously the Holocaust is absolutely horrible. Like maybe yeah. he's the more evil person. Ah, that's it. Yeah. But Stalin ruled for so long and body count. People for so long, the numbers were so high. Yes. And was sending people to the gulag and, and you know what he did in the his own, his own daughter for starvation. It's it seems like for his own country. He yeah, was. yeah. I I would have to go with with Hitler. I think probably, but I mean it's like a inch. I mean Stalin is and, and the whole communism attachment too. It makes it even even rougher. I bet Karl if Karl Marx could see what how Stalin got to implement his ideas and Lenin too, I think he would be really upset. 
because um, a lot of the ways he implemented it was not what he had planned. Um, you know, I'm not. That's not me saying though that Stalin was a guy that had good intentions. I don't know if Stalin ever had good intentions. There's a story of him as a young man um, swimming through like a flooded river. And this because there's a calf out in this island, a young calf. It's like bleeding and crying, and he swims out to it, and like the natural thing would be like to rescue it, bring it back to the shore. He breaks all four of his legs and comes back. And this was, I mean, th- that was an account of a friend that he had in in his, in, you know, in his early years that this happened, but. That's the kind of guy you're dealing with there. Um, so, I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. We talk in psychology as him being an example of a psychopath. Like everything uh, yeah, he's, he's, it's just mentally he's missing empathy. Unstable. He's missing yes. some things. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. So this one comes from Shane Klimchuk. Um, Mike's laughing because he, Crispin, that is. Wow, that's going to be tough. <laughs> Again, um, do you have a problem or dislike of the talk of changing Andrew Jackson off of the $20 bill? All right, so just to, to preface the, the question, this came out of a discussion we were having about Jackson in our class. <clears throat> and I had mentioned that, um, you know, there's this discussion about taking Jackson off the currency. And um, some students felt it was ridiculous. Who cares? Who cares who's on the currency? There's, and, an, there's an empathy piece. Well, and, and, and I, I, I prefaced my comment by saying I, I, I want you not to take offense to this, but as, as a white guy, isn't that easy for you to say? Considering the fact that there's no mm-hmm. minority on any printed bills, and there are no women, and I, I'm proud of my class. They didn't take it personally, but I, you know, I was just trying to get them to think about maybe is it is it time to rethink some of those things? Yeah. Um, who you personally? To who you honor. Personally, I think it is time to rethink some of those. I in Jackson's, in, you know, certainly our historiography of Jackson, mm-hmm. and from hero yep. to to villain to hero to villain. Uh, has changed over the years. Um, and you rethink, I want to point this out for people listening because Mike's pointing out, um, you know, rethinking those things. Mike's political background and opinions, you wouldn't expect him to say that, I guess, right? You, you would not his, usually, yeah. His answer there, you know, rethinking those things, you expect of somebody of the left, the very far left. And that's not the case. And I think that's where as historians, we transcend the political spectrum. Our opinions of this stuff is not influenced by our political beliefs. We're able to, to separate the two. Well, it's interesting you say that because I was, I was in the, in the '90s when there was this push towards what was referred to as revisionist history. Yes, was seen as, as necessarily a bad thing. I don't necessarily think it's bad to reframe uh, yeah, exactly. the way we look at things. It doesn't mean you have to um, agree with it. No, it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. And yeah. doesn't mean that Jackson was, and, and certainly Jackson has problems. But he also has a lot of positives to him yeah. as well, and you know it'd be no different than talking about you know let's take um, hey let's take Lincoln off of some of the currency, let's take Washington off some of the currency. Mm-hmm. You would have way more pushback on that because there's yeah. way easier to make the argument and, and vilify Jackson. But I do think at some point we do need to um, re-examine this because our currency does promote our values. Look it's at mon- any it's a monument, right. Yeah. Look at any country's currency. Look yep. at Canada's. Look at Mexico's. Look at any look country. At it's so confusing they're, to me. <laughs> but they're trying to push their values, their mm-hmm. nationalistic intentions, the leaders who they think are great. And yeah. I, I think we've come such a long way that it's time to start maybe reevaluating that yeah. stuff. Mike, don't see, you? I you know the whole Stonewall Jackson and he was a good leader. I've never viewed him to that side like when you talk about Stalin and Hitler like good and bad mm-hmm. like I believe we really got to examine Jackson from 
the bad, and then... You mean Andrew, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Just because, you know, the whole thing with the Native Americans and, you know, things he did while president. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I think those things get overlooked, and then you put him on money, and it's like you're supposed to... Like, Native Americans basically look at him as mm-hmm. this bad person. There's some Native Americans that often... Yeah. You know, people will joke that they won't get in their checks yeah. in 20s. Yeah, um, like, I've met Native Americans that will not accept $20 yeah. bills. Yep. Like, they just think it's offensive if you try to give but them one. I also think, and this is credit to my uh, professor Michael Oberg at Geneseo, he talks about how we focus so much on the Trail of Tears, but we don't discuss the, the removal of Iroquois peoples from New York. We don't discuss... It's... We have so much cherry-picked a lot of history, and that's not true of just Native Americans. We've cherry-picked what we want to talk about and how we want to talk about it in general. And, and I think as Native, and he, this is from Professor Oberg as well, um, we, we, a lot of times we teach, especially the elementary levels you see it, is Native Americans as people of the past. Like they just don't exist anymore. They drop, I, I, pulled the t- I teach Native Americans um, the assimilation piece in, in eighth grade. I pick up the textbook, and I go to the back and I and I say okay let's look at the index of where uh, Native Americans pop up and after chapter, a certain, chapter one and after a certain page it stops yeah. because the last time they pop up really is the assimilation piece and they get like a slight shout out in the 60s with civil rights with the American Indian movement and stuff like that and then it just it drops off um, so I my, my answer to that question is I agree with everything Mike Christman said. I, I, I think it's got to re- be reevaluated along with a lot of other things. I think that'd um, be Shana. interesting to pose this question to students and to yes. see how relevant it would be or how interested in it they would be because I feel like a lot of our kids are not even going to use a lot of currency. <laughs> it's going to be they haven't dealt with it yet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the about it. I'm just, just thinking about the kids. That's a good point. Yeah. Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, really. A lot of things is PayPal. PayPal. Yeah. It's just use your credit how many, card. How many of us so have paid cash honors. recently? Yeah. I'll be honest with you, as the young guy in the room, I like to point out the young guy in the room, I don't use cash a lot. My father picks on me all the time. Like, oh, people don't use cash. Um, I, so, yeah, she, that's a really good point. I didn't even think of looking at uh, This brings us to our last question, and this one is, is from my eighth-grade classroom because we do an essay on this. Um, this is our last question of the day. Did African Americans really gain their freedom during the Reconstruction era? Um, and, and mine is a resounding no. Um, the reason that this, this is from Ethan Hadzinski. Thank you, buddy. Um, shows me you were listening in class. We examined 12 primary sources, secondary sources on this question. And, you know, the students, many of them acknowledge, yes, the 13th Amendment did um, and slavery, so in some sense they had freedoms, but what did freedom mean? And most students come to the end after examining the sources that personally, yes, they were able to leave, start families, and kind of do it in that way, but um, so in the personal life that might have meant freedom, but it did not mean freedom in their economic life. And the two often overlap, you know, things like sharecropping. They weren't able to exercise themselves economically. And when the troops leave the South and the KKK and white supremacists sort of start to take control, Things almost, the Southerners, in the, from that perspective, that group anyways, not all Southerners, um, but that white supremacist group, try to get it as close to slavery as humanly possible, and that's where you end up. So you kind of have to define what freedom is um, in that sense before you answer the question, but my answer would be no. I, I think it's an astounding no. Yeah. Like if you I don't at, think it's close. If you look at the South, if you look at 
job opportunities. If you look at, at how much people made, even in the North, African Americans compared to whites. If you look at the military, that well, was that's still the thing. It's not, it's not just a Southern disease. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an American. It's, it's a global disease. Yes. It's a human disease. Yes, it's across the United States. Yeah, like, and people see this as like an exclusively United States thing, and it's not. We just in the World Wars we're talking about. George Clemenceau well, in 1918 says, "I would rather have ten Africans die than one Frenchman." on the front lines. And that's in France, who people often say, oh, France treated the U.S. soldier World War One better, and then you've got Clemenceau saying that, saying things like their nervous system isn't as developed because, so they won't respond to shell shock the same way as Frenchmen will, and some really racist stuff. I mean, bringing guys from Africa in chains to the, the Western Front. So it really is a human disease, uh, not just American, Mike. I'm sorry and to cut then, you off. like, the South compared to, like, I always go back to that scene in The Butler. Like, oh, yes. The Butler, where he keeps on asking to be paid for the same Yes. In the White House, and he like keeps on asking him through like what is it twenty years? Yes. And the guy will never pay him the same, and that's in Washington D.C. Yeah. In the fifties, sixties, and seventies, in the White House. Yep. And they're still not granted the same opportunities. Mike. Oh man. <laughs> All right. So hold on. Yeah, hang on. So Mike Christman is going to respectfully disagree because the way the question is phrased <laughs> during Reconstruction. Presidential reconstruction sure. and radical reconstruction when Congress sure. has control. Sure. I would argue that there is more political freedom for mm-hmm. African Americans yep. than there will be in the 1950s and into the 1960s. Absolutely. You have African American yep. members of the House of Representatives. You even have senators from Mississippi who are elected by a, a black elector. Yeah, absolutely. I am relevant. So Politically, I would argue during Reconstruction, yes. there's more political freedom there than there had ever been yep. in the past. Obviously, you know, obviously slavery is gone with Thirteenth Amendment. Right. They clarify citizenship. They make sure that um, the, that right to vote is not legally supposed supposed to be yes. infringed upon. It's after that 1876 election is when everything goes out the window yep. because then okay. you have. The then you have the troops are gone, yep. so there's no watchdog there. Not saying and totally acknowledging that there were problems mm-hmm. during Reconstruction, but the problems are not as big. Yeah. And I think in our historiography we get lost in yep. that sometimes. You know, you you go back and you look at a place like Georgia, where I went for a conference and we talked about the Georgia state legislature mm-hmm. was predominantly black during the Reconstruction era. The day that the soldiers left Atlanta, the um, the sergeant at arms of the state legislature forcibly removed black state yep. legislators. I think in on the I think even more so on the local level, the local um, the town uh, mayors, sheriffs, county yep. sheriffs, things like that. Way more political freedom during Reconstruction. Once Reconstruction ends, I agree with you guys a thousand percent. Now, what what I would say is, well, first of all, when we do it in class, the questions phrase, you know, did did Reconstruction grant? You know, he says during in, in class, we said did it, you know. Mm-hmm. And if I asked you, did it grant freedom? You'd probably say, did the period achieve what its goal was? You'd probably say no. Um, but I would argue, actually, I'm going to disagree a little bit there. After the Panic of 1873. I think the North's view of Reconstruction vastly changes, which would put it within the time frame of Reconstruction. I think it's the Panic of 1873 sets you on the road to compromise. In the major urban centers, like in Georgia, where you just pointed out, you're going to have those troops there till the very day of 1876, 1877. But after the Panic of 1873, 
the country becomes fed up with the Reconstruction era. Like, isn't this done yet? Aren't we through this yet? We're worried about economics. Do we really have time to worry about a group of people that the vast majority of Americans don't care about? So I guess I would argue that that happened earlier, but I would agree with you that, you know, I didn't even mention that, but the radical period of Reconstruction from 66 to, I would say, 73 was very successful in a lot of cases. The Freedmen's Bureau, the Freedmen's Schools, um, it was successful on a, on a very large scale. So you, you're right, Mike. I'm happy you brought that up. If uh, if we have any history geeks who are listening and want to want to read a great book, read The Capital Men. Mm-hmm. Um, all about uh, the, the the politics and the, the political freedom that African Americans get yep. and then lose. Yeah, and that's that's the big because they are doing amazing things. And we talk about mm-hmm. higher and and one of the sets of sources looks at Hiram Revels. There's a message from, um, oh, my God, uh, General Oliver Howard talking about how thirsty they are for knowledge. And so, like, source set A is, like, the positives, all that stuff, like, all the exercise in the radical reconstruction period. And then B and C are the Klan starts, um, Panic of 1873. White League. White yeah, League yeah. And, and things like that. Uh, the Union as it was. And that was published in 1874, the Union as it was. So that that's what always, you know, kind of colored my view of it. I think it's always important to, to acknowledge that just because a law changes, you don't change the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about like the caste system in yes. India and the untouchables, we say, well, it's illegal, but does that really mean people don't treat people poorly? Yes. And I think that, you know, there's That's always... That's a big concept for students to understand. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you find that students, Sheena, do you find students have a problem understanding that? Yeah, and that they don't yeah. understand, well, if it's illegal, how do people yes. get away with it? Yep. But then if you draw the comparisons yes. to the United States... It's well, so would... hard for them to understand, like, just because it's a law doesn't yeah. mean it's going to happen, like, African Americans voting. So Mike and I show them that scene from um, Free State of Jones, where they walk in and there's guns, and, oh, we don't have the Republican tickets. And then it shows the election results, so they all drop their ballots and, and you know... I use the example of uh, the speed limit in town. Yeah, right. Yeah. There. I mean, the speed limit's 35. Does that mean everybody does 35? Right. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, yeah. Well, hello. That's the law, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, that's going to bring it to the end of our show. They ran an hour and 13 minutes. That's right in the zone we wanted to be at, even a little over. Um, you know, I hope you bear with us. I'm sure we'll get better at this as time goes along. Um, I hope you think we did a good job. I hope you ask more questions. Remember, email us at hollyhistory 65 at gmail.com. Hopefully the Twitter page will be up soon. You can tweet questions in. You can see any of the teachers here and submit questions. They can be anonymous. You don't have to put your name on it. Um, Or you can put your name and get the shout-out on there. So we hope that you join us for our next podcast. Thank you so much for listening again. This is uh, Holly History from the High Central School District Library uh, signing off. Thank you.